This is FM 100.5, 101.9, AM 1450, and WGNSRadio.com. Rutherford County's Place to Talk. Stand by, Rutherford County. The WGNS Action Line continues a search for truth. Right now that time, 7.15, a good Monday morning to you. You're tuned in to WGNS on the airwaves since 1947. Our guest with us this morning, who is over the phone with us this morning, Dr. Jackie Gilbert. How are you this morning, Jackie? I'm well, thanks for asking for it. And Dr. Yeah, you too. Dr. Jackie Gilbert is a management professor in the Jones College of Business at MTSU. And the thing you're going to be talking about this morning, combating workplace bullying and why it continues to be such a problem. Tell us a little bit about the background of this. What got you interested in studying more about uh, bullying in the workplace? My research and teaching area for about the past seven years. And when I was doing my research, I found there are many resources that discuss bullying and how it happens. But I think where we need to focus is what can we do about it? So in my book, How to Transform Workplace Bullies into Allies, I begin by telling readers that bullying may not be what people think. It can be unintentional or a matter of ignorance. I simply didn't know what to do. Or it can be on purpose. Someone meant to hurt you and they did it with malice. Intentional bullies can engage in mobbing or gang bullying, uh, hazing, making new recruits feel uncomfortable through initiation, cyberbullying, emotional abuse, and of course, physical abuse. You, you know, you, a, you hear this topic and I, I think... A lot of people out there, they've got a great job, they they work in a great workplace, and they may have never experienced such a thing, so it may be, I don't know, kind of an eye-opener for a lot of people. Well, for sure, because number one, it isn't discussed in many cases in their education, and then they get to work and it's not discussed there either. Um, I think bullying is such a problem because some companies haven't made valuing their employees a top priority. So what we're seeing in several large firms is companies with egg on their face, oops moment. So that begs the question, why weren't they facilitating a culture of transparency in the first place? And I think people in top roles are sometimes more focused on the results and not on the people creating them. So I tell my students, if the leaders take care of the employees, the employees will take care of the customers, and the business will take care of itself. Yeah, great point. What are some examples of things that, you know, during your research that you found to be a big problem within the workplace? I mean, kind of give us an idea of what this bullying has looked like in some companies. Well, in my blog, OrganizedForEfficiency.com, I talk about um, how managers should treat their workers and how that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I discussed they can avoid creating a toxic workplace 
by trusting their employees, by not excessively monitoring or micromanaging them, by treating workers as partners, by capitalizing on their strengths, um, by rewarding people who help their peers, and by asking for feedback, altering their course, making the people they work with a part of the process, community. You know, I, I've got to ask, Dr. Gilbert, is micromanaging these days a form of bullying in some cases? Well, it can be because professionals should be trusted to do their job. They come to the job with certain credentials, and they're expected to fulfill the requirements of their duties without someone continually looking over their shoulder. So I would say yes. Uh, that's very interesting because I, I think there's so many different forms of bullying within a workplace. Sometimes from the outside looking in, it may be a little difficult to figure out what exactly is going on. Am I being bullied or is this person just simply not a very good manager and having a hard time, you know, kind of tallying out what to do and telling employees how to do it? Well, for sure, and I think that bullying within firms is many times unspoken known because people don't want to rock the boat and they remain silent. But if managers just leave things the way they are, they'll metastasize, they'll get worse, and the business will begin to show it. So a leader should always have their hand on the organizational pulse. They should be able to spot problems that are brewing behind the scenes, and I would ask, are these same managers held accountable for how they treat their own subordinates? And is that criterion then used to gauge their advancement, and does that impact their performance appraisal? And this nature of shared governance is incredibly helpful. For example, a cross-section of employees could meet monthly with HR to discuss what they would like to see and what are their issues. So then it's not management that's solely controlling the joystick. It's management and employees in concert deciding what to do. Again, it's this um, notion of community at work. Again, we're talking with Dr. Jackie Gilbert, management professor in the Jones College of Business at MTSU, and the topic this morning, combating workplace bullying and why it continues to be a problem. When you look at small businesses across America, a lot of them don't have an HR department, so I guess it makes it a little more difficult at times to figure out what to do as far as what the employee should do if they feel like they're being bullied. Well, for sure, and they can start with small things. For example, email is a terrific technological tool, but it's misused. And if I'm a manager and all I do is sit behind my desk and send emails, that doesn't create much of a rapport with my employees. So in the book, How to Transform Workplace Boys into Allies, I discuss how people-centered managers can act as unleaders. How can they develop the people around them? Um, number one, they can behave as mentors. They can reach out to newbies. They can initiate projects with them. They can diffuse tension. They can focus on self-improvement. They can volunteer for mentoring and orientation. And I make the point in the last chapter that an unleader is interested in making everyone a leader. And conversely, managers perpetuate abuse when they ignore it, they encourage it, or when they do it. 
You know, something that I think a lot of managers fail to do is have a clear set of goals set forth for their employee, if not goals every single month, but goals when they come into work and when they first get the job, you need to say, hey, hey guys, look, here is exactly what's expected of you, and here are the goals that we're going to reach for. Well, for sure, and the person at the helm charts the course. So that person should not be an anti-example. People shouldn't learn what not to do from observing their boss. Um, what they should see is a person they want to learn and emulate from. So culture at work should happen on purpose. And training is a great start, but training is a comprehensive change effort that looks at every aspect of the company. Performance appraisal, mentoring, recruitment, compensation, and promotion. And companies should first survey their employees. What do the employees want to see? What kind of training do they think will be useful to them? And the company then needs to take those results seriously and then do something with them. Um, one of the biggest ways to foster mistrust is to conduct a survey simply for the survey's sake and let sit on someone else's desk. You know, in this changing work environment since COVID-19 took place and while it's going on now, one of the things that we have seen, a lot of people working from home now, that can lead to either more bullying in a different way or it can lead to more productive personnel and then those in upper management seeing, you know, those in lower management have not been really managing the staff like they needed to be. Well, I think that gets back to this notion of community. Um, in other words, how do I include employees and in decisions about the business, and how can I communicate with them and consider their needs? And it's this notion of perspective-taking. If I can see things the way you do, that will mitigate misunderstandings. So in each chapter of the book, I have exercises that require readers to put themselves in someone else's place to develop empathy, this ability to see things from another person's perspective. And I would also add that a manager should continually be trying to improve themselves. In um, Jack Cantor's book, The Success Principles, he talks about his employees rating him on a scale from 1 to 10. And that's an eye-opening experience. Many people uh, don't do it, I think, may be afraid to do that. Again, we're talking with Dr. Jackie Gilbert this morning from MTSU, and you are the author of How to Transform Workplace Bullies into Allies. So in other words, if you have a workplace bully, if you yourself may start thinking, well, maybe I'm a bully to some of the employees, you ought to read this book, and there's a way to make changes, and there's a way to you know, turn around some of the bad, make it good. Yes, and um, I also discuss consequences when poor behavior is let loose into a corporate world, which can, of course, occur through negligence, um, like when a manager chooses not to address a problematic situation, or in toxic work cultures where the managers themselves may be the ones participating in the abuse. And people look to their leaders. If they see a poor example, then that will trickle down throughout the entire company. You know, in, in some settings, especially larger work environments, the crowd mentality idea can take over, and you may be participating in bullying and not even fully recognize it 
until you take a step back and say, you know, something's wrong here, and, you know, I, I've been a part of it. Well, certainly that relates to mobbing or gang bullying, and this is where people find someone in the workplace who they're envious of and they want to bring them down, so they have a concerted plan um, to make them look bad. And if you don't say anything to the mob, um, they'll become emboldened and they'll amass followers. And then half the people um, are afraid of the bully and hide behind them. And unfortunately, some people are just delighted to see what's going on because they didn't like that person in the first place. Again with us this morning, Dr. Jackie Gilbert, management professor in the Jones College of Business and also author of How to Transform Workplace Bullies and Allies. And as we close out this morning, how can someone get this book? Well, it's information. Age Publishing is the, um, is the publisher, and it's also on Amazon. Sounds great. Well, Dr. Gilbert, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me, Bart. Time right now, 827. You're tuned in to WGNS. This is the Action Line. More to come, more guests to come as well. The Action Line on FM 100.5, 101.9, AM 1450, and WGNSradio.com. We're Rutherford County's Place to Talk. A few spotty showers and thunderstorms possible late this afternoon with a blend of clouds and sunshine developing in a high into the mid-90s. Southwest winds around 5 to 10. I'm meteorologist Jennifer Wojcicki on News Radio WGNS. Currently, it's 77. This is Peter Demas, and I invite your family to come and join our family back at Demas's restaurants. One of the things that we have always done is we have been very careful with the way that we sanitize our tables. We have mandatory hand washing stations. Our employees are required to wear masks. We are just overall just being very careful with everything that we are doing and the way we handle food, the way we handle plates to ensure everybody's safety as they return and start enjoying the dining room experience again. Demas's restaurants on Broad Street in Murfreesboro. Listen live to WGNS Radio on our website, Analexa, or Google devices. Search WGNS Radio for on-demand podcasts in iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Plus, we have direct links to podcasts at WGNSRadio.com. The Action Line on FM 100.5, 101.9, AM 1450, and WGNSRadio.com. We're Rutherford County's place to talk. Time right now, 828. You're tuned in to WGNS on the airwaves again since 1947. Our guest right now, Dr. Ryan Otter, biology professor and co-director of the MTSU Data Science Program. And some of the things we'll be talking about this morning, MTSU partnering with other state universities. Dr. Otter, good morning to you. Good morning. How are you? I am good. We've heard a lot in the news over the past couple of years, really, about MTSU partnerships, and some of those partnerships are with other universities. Tell us a little bit more about this. Sure. This partnership actually puts uh, three universities, all in Middle Tennessee, on one core mission, and that is to be better at collaborating with one another and to push more projects forward in cyber infrastructure, computer science, Um, and pretty much that tech sector as a regional focus. 
you know, in the business world, we've seen companies merge. We've seen companies collaborate with each other on one specific goal. We've seen companies buy companies out. We've seen companies do all sorts of things. But the idea of partnerships between universities is one of those ideas that really helps the student out more than anything and helps point them in a different direction at times. So this is pretty positive stuff. I, I entirely agree. And I think it helps not just the students uh, that are presently at these universities, but it helps incoming students and the community at large. So each university, uh, it doesn't matter if we're talking about Middle Tennessee or anywhere in the country, has strengths. And not all strengths are going to be the same. And only through collaboration can you really join forces and maximize everybody's strength. And so what we're trying to do here is help our current students have other places to lean on because other places have different strengths. And at the same time, help the community and private industry, business, um, incoming students understand that there is not just one place to go, that we are working together so everybody can move forward better. So with this latest partnership, I guess give us an idea of what this partnership means for the community and what it means for the university and also for students. What And what is it exactly? Sure. So this is actually what I would consider to be a kind of a first-tier model of a collaboration. So the National Science Foundation um, has granted us funds to really get to know each other better with the goal of us putting... Uh, more grants out in the future, reaching out to our community, both in um, community colleges and other universities around the area, to make Middle Tennessee a known entity within this tech space. Uh, if we think about the area as it sits right now, Nashville is growing like crazy, Chattanooga is growing, and one of Nashville has a huge healthcare sector and multiple startups within tech. But one thing that this area is not really known for is homegrown talent within that area. Those are more found in San Francisco and New York and Austin, Texas. And there's a real opportunity here to grow that within Middle Tennessee, but that cannot fall to one university. And so we are, we are stronger together, and that's a lot of what this collaboration is about, to help us build that foundation so more tiers can get built on top of it. Again, with us today, Dr. Ryan Otter, biology professor and co-director of the MTSU Data Science Program. When you look at sciences, it seems like a lot really starts at the university level, and then from there, it expands to help out the private sector and businesses around the country in a lot of ways. Absolutely. This is the... We think about it from a training perspective, right? So for in order for an industry to grow and develop, they need good talent. So where does that talent come from? And yes, a lot of that talent will get groomed once they're in an industry. But universities play this really pivotal role in transitioning from K-12 through education to being career ready. And that early development in particular, well, across all fields really, but I'm a scientist, so maybe I'm a little biased in that one. Uh, and particularly in sciences, this is where they, we really get to start challenging students to ask questions, to develop ideas, to have them thinking in a way that they can provide not only um, 
say, services to a company, but also ideas and development. And this is across the country. This is not a, a Middle Tennessee-specific piece. This is what universities really serve. And myself as a scientist, I can't tell you the value that uh, universities gave me in terms of my development and the opportunity to have my head be thinking about science in a different way rather than just a textbook, right? And that's what it takes first. Students and everybody really need to understand that there's some basic terminology and foundations within science. But after those foundations are built, now it becomes the, the questions that have to come out of that. And that is where partnerships and innovation and collaborations um, with industries really come in. You know, thanks to universities around the country, we have seen, I don't know, the, the spawning of new creations such as cures for diseases. We have seen new products being made, new types of metal, new types of glass, new new types. You know, the, the list is endless for things that have been created thanks to universities, students, and their curiosity of just learning more. Absolutely. And this is, I, I think, even one scale larger than that, right? So universities play this really interesting creative niche in societies, right? If you think about it from an industry perspective, um, their goal has to be to deliver product or services so they can have a return on their investment and their or go forward. But where in, the, where in society is it built to really go after creative mechanisms that don't necessarily have a direct return immediately? That's universities. And so only through partnerships can those really new ideas turn into uh, full-scale development and, and products and services that can really be delivered. So I think it's truly the partnership that is needed to get it all the way from start to finish, and each piece plays a vital role, including universities. And if I just expand on that just a little bit further, that the education component of that cannot be, uh, cannot be understated that you have to have a foundation. You have to have a foundation to build on. So you cannot start from nothing and come up with a, a great idea, right? So the foundational education has to be there. Then comes the curiosity once you know enough of the basic knowledge to figure out where the gaps are. Where are the where are the spaces that you can actually advance? And then once those advances are really developed. This is where industry has been wonderful at knowing how to make those products and services go to market. And so really this is, I see it more from a societal viewpoint of where, do each piece, where does each piece really fit in? Because there is no one size fit all, but it's much more of a team effort. So when the general public hears the announcement of a new grant, such as a $250,000 National Science Foundation grant, when you hear about things like that, I think the general public says, well, that's great. I, I, I don't know what it's used for. I don't know how the money is used. I, I don't know what the purpose of it is. So I guess tell us, break it down a little bit. So when you hear about a university securing a decent grant, where does the money go? That is a great question. Um, I'm always about very practical endpoints and making sure that transparency is, is fully on the table. So when you hear a, a grant of any size, and let's just, we can use mine as well, the one we're working on right now as an example. So this goes so much into what the objectives truly are. So in this case, this is split between three universities over about an 18-month period. 
And we have multiple objectives, five or six that come out of this. And with each of these grants, there are key aspects to how are we going to impact our community uh, from this. Now, what's great about National Science Foundation grants and other federal grants like this is they're entirely open to the public. We have absolute transparency with all of these pieces. And so when a grant comes in, there's usually one university that takes a lead if this is a collaborative grant like this one. In this case, uh, the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga gets, gets a lot of credit. They were really good front runners on this one for our, for our group. And we collaborate um, very regularly to make sure that these objectives get done. From a public's perspective, the key, I think, is to really reach out to those that are involved in this study. So if anybody has questions or concerns or um, just plain curious about, it, it kind of triggers something in your brain. If a flag gets raised, that sounds interesting, or I don't fully understand it. I think the easiest, best way to do that is to reach out to those directly involved and ask the questions and engage. Right? And I'll be honest with you, right? we write academic proposals for, for grants such as this, and the wording can be... Uh, not very clear, uh, especially from a general public reading viewpoint, because that's the writing that it takes to, um, to receive grants like this. But what it really takes is to sit down and have the conversations on specific proposals and specific grants to really understand the impact of what they are. That's why I, I'm happy to engage um, with anybody that wants to reach out and be interested in the work that we're doing. So with a grant like this one, what is the main priority here that we're looking for, and how is this going to impact students coming into the university? Sure. So for this specific grant, we can address that now. So this is really to assemble a consortium within Middle Tennessee. We want to improve regional workforce development opportunities. We want to make sure that when students coming into not only MTSU, but Middle Tennessee universities, that they have a pipeline into what careers, opportunities, programs exist within Middle Tennessee, Middle Tennessee universities in computer science, cyber infrastructure, data science. We want to uh, establish uh, partnerships and collaborations in the region. And in particular, this is built for um, this consortium then to put greater proposals forward for direct impact grants that are more specific than uh, than one this is this than the one that this one really is. The other major goal is to broaden participation in computer and computational sciences and retain students in underrepresented groups. So what we want to do is make sure that we can really put a banner up in Middle Tennessee and say, if, this is, if these are areas you're interested in, we want to find you and make sure you know that there are opportunities to stay in Middle Tennessee, get trained in Middle Tennessee, and connect to businesses and companies in the workforce that exists in Middle Tennessee. I love it. So you may have some CEO out there finds out about this program and he may contact you and say, look, Here's where we're going to need help over the next 10 years. We need to figure out a way to come together and bring on students who are already living in this area and figure out how they can be a part of us and maybe help us just really soar and expand 
with A, B, and C, whatever that A, B, and C is. Yes. You could not be more correct. And, and I have to give a, a great shout-out here to my co-director of the Data Science Institute, Charlie Apigian. He has been working diligently on workforce development in Middle Tennessee for years. And I cannot tell you the number of conversations that he has had and that we are having presently in the Data Science Institute exactly uh, down the path line you just described. Companies um, coming out to us, not just CEOs, we're also talking about uh, human resources saying, well, we would love to be here, we'd love to expand, but where's the talent? But where's the talent? And it is amazing the amount of, of companies and individuals that really enjoy and want to be in this area, but you need to have workforce in order to do that. I know that's happening here at MTSU with the Data Science Institute. We're recognizing that with our partners at UTC and at, uh, at uh, Tennessee Tech the same sort of way, and we said, well, what if we all looked at this holistically rather than individually? And so workforce development, we see this helping students, we see this helping industry, we see this helping the state, we see this helping the region. This is really to help develop the workforce and build this region uh, in the tech sector. You know, when you hear people today talk about the younger generation, you hear a lot of them say, well, they're lazy. Well, they stay on Xbox all day long, things like that, you know. But but in reality, it almost seems like the generation of today who's coming up to be a leader, you know, in the future, it seems like maybe it's not necessarily a bit of laziness, but instead they want to see specific results. And so that's going to carry over into the workplace. They want to be able to literally get things done when they want to get them done. And that could be right away. That could be next week. But it seems like their gearing is almost geared towards figuring out tough, complicated things and figuring out how to get them done easier. Well, let's be honest. And I, I have two children, um, and uh, I, have, I have two boys that are 11 and 9 years old. They are not living in the world that I was raised in. They're not living in the world that you were raised in. And if we really think about that, I, I do not view, and I understand exactly the, uh, the common point, and I hear it very regularly, um, I, don't, I do not agree on the, on the fact that um, the younger generation is lazy. I think that they are living in a world that I don't fully understand because I wasn't raised in it. I, I, the idea of having unlimited information at unlimited speeds at your fingertips is unheard of. I remember when I couldn't get a CD player to work in my car, and that was mind-blowing technology, right? So now the idea of having access to resources, the idea of how much do you need to memorize versus how much you have on your fingertip changes the ballgame. And not only how much knowledge and information is available, but the speed in which it's available. We think of smartphones and technology that's at our fingertips. I can Google a question on almost anything, right? The, available, the ability to have that and to be raised with that and to know that it's there tomorrow impacts that. So I agree with your point that the, the younger generation is looking for things within fulfillment that are very different than probably the ones that I was looking at and probably yourself, and anybody from earlier generations. And so I think it's very important that we understand the dynamic of the world we live in without ignoring our past, right? These two things have to merge together because the workforce of the future 
are young individuals. That, 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 is, that cannot be argued. So what we need to do is try to understand solutions that move forward without someone just saying, okay, well, they're right or I'm right. Or this is, this is a, in my opinion, this is a compromise potential situation. And everybody moves forward because of it. And I really think that if we at universities can be very good at bridging that gap between early young development and then professional development and then industry development, which we can all agree are very different things, but universities play this intersection role. And I think it's important that we really understand how to transition well through that, which means universities have to be partnering with K-12 education. They need to be partnering with industries the entire time because we're playing both sides of that gap. It's almost like comparing a DOS-based computer system when we were kids <laughs> to computers of today. While computers of today are much more difficult for those you know, in our age group to understand, you know, somebody younger looks at them and, and they're like, well, here's what you need to do in order to fix this problem. I mean, things are just so different compared to our childhood versus childhood of those today. And it's like those who are younger today are really more capable of taking on more complex problems and issues. Yeah, I think it's different. So I agree with you. But what also comes with that, there are other issues and problems and concerns where we may have had a problem with and here's one of the greatest examples I like to use on this, right, is we are living in a time which is very unique. Traditionally, uh, we have been limited by our equipment, right? So if, if we wanted to do supercomputing in the 1980s, then you can't do that on a DOS computer, right? The, the technology wasn't there to push the ideas forward. So the ideas were ahead of the technology. Well, now we're in a space where technology has almost can be pushing further than our ideas. Right from everybody, from everybody from their home, probably right now, you can take. You remember how old your computer is. You can get access to cloud-based supercomputing, even from an old, an old laptop, because your your laptop doesn't need to have the processing power. You just need the window into the cloud, right? So, the world is different, and with that also become new problems. I can only imagine if I was a, a very young person like my children and you know you have all the information that you need, and that really can is out there in the world for the most part, at your fingertips, and then being asked to memorize out of a book, this, this creates a challenge, where before it was you need to know this so you can move it forward, and the answer could be, well, I have it right here. Yeah. And I, I don't have a solution for this. What I'm saying is, is that changes the framework on how you approach problems. And so I see it being different, but maybe better, maybe worse, could be in the middle, but it is different. Definitely different. Again, with us this morning, Dr. Ryan Otter, biology professor and co-director of the MTSU Data Science Program. And uh, unfortunately, we're already out of time. But for those who would like to learn more about all of this, what, what should they do? Feel free to contact me directly at the university. Feel free to look up the Data Science Institute. Uh, at MTSU. My partners at UTC and TTU are also very open and willing to discuss any and all projects we have ongoing. Please feel free to reach out. We will come back and have a good discussion and try to address any questions or concerns people have. Sounds good. Thank you again for joining us this morning. Thank you. 
That was Dr. Ryan Otter, biology professor and co-director of the MTSU Data Science Program. You can learn more. I would say just Google MTSU Data Science. That'd probably be the easiest way. Or just go to mtsunews.com and you'll just scroll down. You'll see some stories and this will be one of the topics there. Time right now, 8.50. I do have more news and more information coming up. The Action Line on FM 100.5, 101.9, AM 1450, and WGNSRadio.com. We're Rutherford County's place to talk. Hi, this is Jay Farner, CEO of Rocket Mortgage. Making the right financial decisions has never been more important. We can help guide you to those right decisions now when they matter most. Mortgage rates are near historic lows, so when you call 8338-ROCKET or visit us at rocketmortgage.com to start your refinance, you'll be well on your way to saving money every month. The rate today on our 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is 3.375%, APR 3.59%. Right now could be a great time for you to take some positive financial steps forward with a cash-out refinance from Rocket Mortgage, which could give you the boost that you're looking for. In addition, we may be able to help you refinance with little or no out-of-pocket costs. At Rocket Mortgage, we're committed to every client, every time, no exceptions, no excuses, giving you the best mortgage experience. Call us today at 8338-ROCKET or go to rocketmortgage.com to learn more. Rates subject to change. Pay 1.875% fee to receive this discounted rate. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. License in all 50 states. NMLS number 3030. COVID-19 has changed our world, and First National Bank of Murfreesboro is here to help you. We understand your uncertainty, and First National Bank of Murfreesboro is always here for our customers. We encourage the use of our digital tools, ATM, mobile banking, mobile deposit, internet, and phone banking, and even the drive through First National Bank of Murfreesboro, 2230 Mercury Boulevard. Member FDIC. The Action Line on FM 100.5, 101.9, AM 1450, and WGNSRadio.com. We're Rutherford County's place to talk. Right now, that time, 8.51. You're tuned in to WGNS. Our guest right now, Dr. Katie Falls, a professor of media studies in the School of Journalism and Strategic Media on the MTSU campus. Dr. Falls, good morning to you. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Well, first of all, I, I guess one of the big things we're talking about this morning, the whole COVID-19 pandemic, because we're hearing new yeah. news stories about it every single day, but yeah, the plans to reopen schools. Yes, uh, which I know is a, it's a very heated topic with a lot, not a lot of great solutions. I mean, I, I think that uh, everyone is just doing the best they can in this situation. Uh, but I think that the trick here really is for us to have a clear plan across multiple le- different levels across the community uh, with um, parents and students and administrators all working together to really make both options work, at least for Rutherford County. Yeah, and it's, you know, there's a lot of tough decisions to be made for sure as far as, you know, well, should we do it this way? Should we do it that way? Require students to wear masks? Require college students to wear a mask? I mean, there's just so many questions out there. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. Uh, Well, and I think the mask question, I I would say absolutely we should have students uh, as well as faculty, teachers, administrators wear masks while on campus, while on school property. just to really prevent, uh, of course, further transmission as well as the schools from shutting down again 
once they do open. Now, you've got a book out, Constructing Constructing the Outbreak, Epidemics in Media and Collective Memory. What is, what is the book about exactly? I mean, how does that break down? Sure. Actually, it comes out in September. Uh, it's an academic book that looks at the history of media coverage and constructions uh, of disease and epidemics in media, looking at different epidemics that stretch back from 1721 smallpox in colonial Boston all the way to the 1952 polio epidemic. Uh, and so what I'm looking at in each chapter uh, has kind of a different focus, looking at what media was available at the time and how were, were these stories constructed and told to the people in their moment, as well as how do we remember or oftentimes forget about these various epidemics. You, you know, that, really, that yeah, is interesting. I, I, I mean, to study that, to look back some 200 mm-hmm. years and see how it was handled back then, how is it being handled today, I mean, there's got to be some similarities there, but at the same time, there's got to be some things that are just mm-hmm. totally out there. Uh, absolutely, especially when you look at remedies. Uh, but the biggest difference, I would say, is that uh, in the past, we really didn't have media to immediately communicate the rise of, of an outbreak. And so oftentimes, people wouldn't even find out there was an outbreak until you were three weeks in or a month into the outbreak. Um, versus now, part of the reason why it feels like our information is always changing is because we're getting the information so much faster. That even before, for example, COVID-19 came to Tennessee, we were already hearing a lot about it. Uh, but what is interesting to me is also how kind of the similarities that you see in terms of people panicking, in terms of not knowing what to do, uh, in terms of, of how do we make these tough decisions like when to open uh, businesses up when to reopen schools. You know, something I have noticed about the pandemic with COVID-19 and mm-hmm. in reading past news stories and past books about issues dealing with pandemics, something I've seen with COVID-19 that mm-hmm. I have not really read about elsewhere is that a lot of the information was government-driven and still is government-driven, but at the same time, you've got one state telling their people to do it this way, then another state mm-hmm. doing something totally opposite. And that is uh, absolutely true. Um, and I think that just goes to show that uh, you're not going to see a one-size-fits-all approach to an epidemic, or especially with pandemics, as different you know, waves of the epidemic hit different areas. But there's also a lot going on, right, locally as well as at the state level and national level uh, to make some different decisions about uh, what's going to affect the people of that particular region. A lot of people will say, oh, well, the media is pushing this agenda or whatever the agenda they think is being pushed. But with the case of COVID-19, mm-hmm. do you think it's more of a well, the government is saying to do it this way, and then next week it changes, and the federal government suggesting do it this way. And I think that that's problematic if the, the, it doesn't feel like the government is backing what's probably best for public health. Uh, now, that is not something you would have seen in the past, because in the past, especially if we're talking about 60 years ago or 100 years ago, uh, outbreaks were a lot more frequent of different kinds of diseases, and people were more familiar with dangerous diseases. It was something that they lived with all the time. Uh, and so you wouldn't, see as, you wouldn't see as much resistance in terms of, you know, what, what should we do to try to make ourselves safer? Because, uh, you know, when you frequently have schools shut down, for example, because of measles outbreaks or diphtheria outbreaks, you're already kind of accustomed to that way of life, that 
this is a risk and we need to take action against it or worse things are going to happen. In other words, uh, 100 years ago, for example, Mm -hmm. folks may look at whatever the pandemic is and they may say, well, okay, here's what's going on Mm -hmm. now. So kids, you're going to stay home for the next week and then we're going to do this, this and this to protect our family. But these days, you almost mm-hmm. have people running around every different direction saying, well, we've never seen this before. We don't know what to do. We're yeah. just not going to leave the house. Absolutely. Or the other extreme, meaning everybody goes out and maybe uh, takes risks that they wouldn't have taken in the past. Uh, especially, again, when you've seen friends and family die frequently of diseases as they would have 100 years ago, you know, with the influenza pandemic 100 years ago. They'd already experienced a lot of different kinds of diseases, and even in that moment, they were experiencing a lot of different kinds of diseases that were threatening lives. And so, it's, I mean, it's, it's just a completely different kind of, a, kind of mindset when you're already living in an era in which uh, disease is prevalent and especially frequently attacks children. Yeah, so, so back then, people would have taken it very serious, but at the same time, they may not panic to the extreme that we're seeing in some situations today, mm-hmm. but yet they would take it serious. Oh, definitely. Well, 100 years ago, it was a little bit different, too, because of World War One, of course, which completely changed even how different newspapers talked about the pandemic in the moment, because all of it, of course, was very focused on war discourse, uh, which dominated everything, even as they were telling people to wear masks. Uh, they would compare it to the soldiers wearing gas masks overseas. So how can you do your part locally uh, and within the U.S. wear a mask just like the soldiers wear the gas mask? Yeah. Uh, Again with us this morning, Dr. Katie False, a professor of media studies in the School of Journalism and Strategic Media, has a book out, Constructing the Outbreak, Epidemics in Media and Collective Memory. And and unfortunately, we're out of time already, but folks can learn more, I, I guess, by... Uh, reading the book. That would be the number one answer right there. Sure. Uh, I also have a blog as well in which I'm, I'm blogging in real time about all this stuff as it unfolds. Cool stuff. What's the uh, website for that? Uh, it's just profkatiefoss.com. Sounds good. Thank you for joining us. All right. Thank you for having me.